I'd like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Philippians. Uh, this morning we will consider Philippians chapter 2, the uh, first four verses of this chapter. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, beloved, before we hear God's word, if you would join your hearts together with me in prayer, please pray with me. Our Father and our God, your, word, your words are pure words, pure, like silver purified in a furnace seven times over. We pray, Father, that as, as we hear the pure words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, speaking to us through the proclamation of the gospel and through the reading of his word, we pray, Father, that you would renew our strength, set us on wings of eagles, Lord, fill us with strength to persevere through all that we face in this life and to endure unto the end. We pray, Father, that you would do this good work in the hearts and minds of your people, that your name might be glorified in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, beloved, this is the word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Verse 1 of chapter 2 rides on the heels of Paul making mention of the church's struggles. In chapter 1, verse 29, he said, You will suffer for the sake of Christ. It is a gift from God to believers, and so we will suffer. In verse 30, he said he and the church were engaged in the same conflict. And so we are all in a conflict, a spiritual conflict as Christians. So there were difficulties among the people of God in Philippi, as there are in the church today, as there are in every generation of families, of believing families. There are difficulties. We suffer. We face opposition. We face spiritual opposition. We are a church in conflict. That is the reality in which we live. What Paul understood about all of this for the Philippians was that conflict, in this case, might give rise to division. We have opposition against us. We are going through conflict. The temptation is that we would be divided in the midst of our suffering. Perhaps there was already seeds of division forming in this church that Paul knew of, which is why he addresses possible division here, or unity here. And so Paul sought here to uproot any forms of selfishness, any forms of vain glory that were residing in the minds of the church. He sought to eradicate those things. We see in Paul's letter that there, in Paul's other letters, this letter and other letters, that there was nothing that made him happier as a minister of the gospel in ministry than to see and hear that the members of the churches were being obedient to the word. That made him very happy to learn and hear about 
what is going on in the churches and to hear that they are being faithful to the word of God. He often referred to this obedience as having love for all the saints. He was happy about reports of this. Paul prayed for the Philippians in chapter 1. In in this letter, he prayed for the Philippians that their love would abound more and more. So this is what he wants to see. This is what he wants to hear about in the churches. Love abounding more and more. And in fact, this whole letter could be considered a thank you note from Paul to the Philippian church for helping him financially. They helped him financially and for praying for him while he was in chains for the gospel. We've talked about this a couple of times already. In chapter 4, he rejoiced because the Philippians revived their concern for him. And so you can see there he's delighted to, to see and to hear that the church is doing what they're supposed to do. They're serving each other. And in this case, they were serving Paul in particular. And so he wants to see more of this. He wants to see more of this in the Philippian church, which is, uh, what, is he, what he's addressing here. And so he mentions these things here, love and having concern for the interests of others. Conflict and suffering, friends, can tempt us to become isolated. If we suffer, we think, well, I need to distance myself from others. I need to make sure that I'm taken care of first. I need to disregard the significance of others and make sure that my significance is elevated in the midst of all of my pain. And so we, tempt, we are tempted to be, try to become self-sufficient, selfish even. But we as Christians, as members of the body of Christ, need to remember and appreciate is that conflict and suffering should lead us not to isolation, but into greater love for others, into a greater concern for the needs of others. That is what suffering should do. It should lead us to have a greater appreciation for what the person next to us is going through in the church. A more vulnerable dependence upon the church. That is what suffering should produce and support of the church. And so with all of that, on the other side of suffering, greater unity. There is only division if we, become, we start to become selfish in our thinking. Even if it's as a result of intense suffering. The goal is to not to be self-sufficient, self-supportive in all, all things. It's to be more vulnerable, more dependent upon the prayers and the help of the church. And so greater unity. Well, if unity in the church makes Paul happy, then disunity and infighting in the church would bring him sorrow. And so he says in verse 2, complete my joy. Bring the joy, Paul was saying, bring the joy that I have for you to its proper end by being unified. He, he will tell the church he loves them. He, this church is his joy and his, his crown. He is delighted to serve them. But he's telling them here, complete, complete it. Bring it to its proper end. Let me hear that you are unified in all things. Let me hear that you are serving one another's needs. Now, the structure of these verses, uh, verses 1 through 4, somewhat rhythmic and poetic. Now, while complete my joy, kind of the phrase, complete my joy, kind of stands off by, by itself, the rest of the lines, they kind of fall into patterns. You might think of the stanzas in a hymn or the verses in a song in a one-line chorus. Well, if this were to be considered a song, which no one, no one 
for the most part, thinks that these verses are. And however, they do think that verses 6 through 11 is a hymn, a Christian hymn. We'll look at that, Lord willing, later. But there is a rhythmic quality, a, a pattern to these verses. And if you were to put this in a song, the chorus might be, Complete my joy. That would be the chorus of the song. And the other stanzas would support and explain that one line. And so you might hear it, you might hear the structure if we say it like this. Here's verse 1. If there is encouragement, if there is comfort from love, if there is fellowship in the Spirit, complete my joy. Second verse. Have the same mind. Have the same love. Have the same soul. Have one mind. Complete my joy. Third verse. Nothing from selfishness. Nothing from conceit. Count others more important. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. Complete my joy. So you can see there the the quality of the, the structure, the pattern that's in these verses. Now with this structure in mind, let's look at the first part of this, uh, this pattern. Verse 1, Paul says, so if, here in verse 1, meaning as a result of the conflict that we are all experiencing, as a result of the opposition that all of us are experiencing together in different forms, he says, do this, complete my joy. That is what Paul means here by saying, so if. Now, how does that work and what does it look like? Well, Paul begins to explain this, all of this in an ingenious way to get the intention of his hearers. He says over and over, if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any type of comforting love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if there is any affection, any sympathy, if there is any compassion, so he gets the attention of his hearers by structuring in this way. But now what do we need to understand about what he's saying here? The first thing we need to understand about these lines is that Paul was not saying that there was an actual possibility in this church that these things were not there. That is not what he was saying. This is not like saying to one of your children, honey, look in the fridge. If there's any juice, bring me a glass, please. Or to say to that same child, if there isn't juice in the fridge, then will you please go to the store and get some more? You can see that that there's an actual possibility as they go to the fridge that there might not be juice in the fridge. That is not what Paul is saying. There is not a possibility that these things are not there, even though he says if. He's just doing this to get their attention. No, Paul structured this in a way to perk up the ears of his listeners and really to say to the Philippians, there is no alternative. You have no alternative but to be unified. Why? Because you are in Christ. You are united to him. The Spirit is present with you and at work in you. It's a given reality. It is not an if. It's not a possibility. If this, if it's not there, then I don't know what to say to you. That is not what Paul was saying. The Spirit was there, is present among believers in Christ. We do share in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit of Christ. And so this is real, Spirit-produced Christian love that was present among the Philippians and is present with us today. It's a given reality. Therefore, Paul says, complete my joy and your joy by being unselfish. By being unified in the power of the one Holy Spirit who is already there 
Be unified. Do not be selfish. I understand you're going through opposition. I understand you are suffering. Be unified. The Spirit is at work within within you. The sympathy, the compassion, the mercy of Christ is already present. Be unified. Complete my joy by doing this. And Paul said as much already in chapter 1. In the opening of the letter, he addresses all the saints in Christ Jesus. This is who we are. We are saints in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And so in the encouragement of Christ is already there. Then he says, you are all partakers with me of grace. Presently, partakers with me of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So the grace is already there. It's already working among them. We already have participation in the Spirit. Paul also mentioned the work of the Spirit in their prayers. In verse 19, he says, he had said to them in the previous chapter, I know through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So the Spirit was already helping them in their prayers for Paul. He is already working among them. And then Paul turns right around and says, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any love in the Spirit, you can see there what he's doing. He's essentially saying, it's already there. Make it evident. Make it known. Be unified. Do not be, do not be selfish. And so the affection, the compassion that we should have for one another, friends, it is already present within us right now by the Holy Spirit. That is the case for every single one of us. And beloved, this is what happens in us through faith in Christ. We are joined together by the one Spirit in Christ, and in this way, we are the one body of Christ. There are not two bodies. There are not three bodies. There is one body of Jesus Christ, and you are a part of it. And that has been done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what then naturally flows from this Spirit-created union Love. That is what flows from that. And that is what should continue to flow all the more. Love for one another and from love, the things that Paul lists here. Comfort, consolation, sympathy, compassion. It's already there. Make it known all the more. Make it flow even more abundantly. These are the ways in which, friends, we truly strengthen one another in love. In the midst of our suffering. Whatever forms that suffering may take, we are drawn toward one another, not away from each other. And so as we're drawn toward each other to serve one another's interests, we build each other up against the opposition that we all face. You see how that works. And I I hope you can see now how division doesn't help in that. Division actually works against that. It works against our ability to fight, to to wage war in this conflict that we are in. And so, friends, this is not a possibility. It's not if this is there. If it's not, we don't know what to do. It is a reality. In the spirit we love, we love because God first loved us. The fruit, the first mention of the kinds of fruit that comes from the spirit is love. The fruit of the spirit is love. And then all sorts of other things. And so in Christ, we love. We love one another. And so Christ is already present within us. True love is found in Christ, and that true love is here by virtue of our union with Christ. And so this is the foundation that we stand on, friends. When you hear these words, complete my joy, be unified, 
We're already standing on that foundation. That love is already present. That unselfishness is already present. Compassion is already here. We just seek to do it all the more. We seek to serve each other all the more. And so Paul says, standing on this foundation, complete my joy. By doing what? He says, make this love evident. And how so? Well, in a word, Paul says, complete my joy, make this love evident, be unified. That's essentially what he's saying here. That's how it's done. How do you make that love evident? Be unified. The second stanza of this song emphasizes this, if this was a song, it's not a song, but if this was a song, verse 2, it emphasizes this very important point. He says, have the same mind, think the same, have the same love, be in full accord with one another, or be one soul. That's, that's how that word could be translated. Have one mind. In other words, there should not be any overarching selfish motives and prerogatives in competition with one another in the church. That should not be present. Any selfish motives, any overarching prerogatives that only involve us, only involve me, what I want, what I need, that should not be present in the church. That is essentially what Paul is saying here. No form of competition with one another in the church. We are all to think the same, to think in the same manner. And what should we be thinking? Well, in this context, we should be thinking how to magnify Christ in the body. And how do we do that? We should be thinking how do we magnify Christ in the body by serving one another's needs, by thinking about the interests and the needs of our brothers and sisters next to us. That is what we should be thinking about, filling our minds with. That is how we should be thinking. Now, these phrases are not saying that we should all look and dress the same. That is not what he is saying at all. Paul is not saying we should do all the things that we do in the exact same way. And we've mentioned this before, but that's the mentality of a religious cult. Conformity to one way in every meticulous little detail, every single little thing. That is precisely the, the, the definition of a religious cult built around the personality and the looks of the religious leader. There, everyone is expected to conform in all ways to the religious leader of the cult. And that approach is actually anti-Christian. That is not what Paul is saying here. There can be diversity in the body in regard to the way in which we go about doing all sorts of things. You could think about the way in which we educate our children, the way in which we enjoy entertainment, the forms of entertainment that we like, the forms of discipline that we take with our kids. Those things can be diverse. But we can all think the same, even as that diversity is enjoyed among us. This diversity can be appreciated and experienced among us to the glory of God while we also do what Paul says here. Have the same mind. Think the same way. About what? About the overall objective. And what is that? Sincere Christian love and unity. There can be all sorts of differences, all sorts of diversity, within that one objective as we seek to do that. That is possible. And so that is what Paul is calling us to here and and is to think the same, have the same soul, be one soul, have one, one overarching main objective for every single one of us as Christians and serve that objective. 
In the last verse, last stanza, the apostle gives the church a little more detail. He essentially says in the last part, don't be selfish. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Look not only to your own interests. Now this is our, every single one of us, this is our sinful inclination that we fight against all the time, is it not? We want to do the exact opposite of this. We do want to only look to our own interests. We do want to think of ourselves as more significant than others. We do only want to think about what we need and what we want and completely disregard what others need and what others want. We fight against this all the time, and especially perhaps when we are in conflict, when we suffer. We start to think to ourselves and say to ourselves, I'm going to advance my own cause. I will only be concerned with and think about what I need, what I want, because I deserve it. Because I'm suffering. I'm entitled to it. Is that not how we think at times? We do. Now this type of thinking reminds us, friends, of Eve's thinking in the garden. She saw the fruit of the forbidden tree, and what did she think about the tree? And what did she start to think to herself? I will become wise. I will become like God. And so she ate. And her husband did the exact same thing. He he thought similarly. He thought, I can become wise. I can become like God. And so he selfishly ate. He did act out of selfish motive, selfish concern. And afterwards, of course, there was division between them, between husband and wife, when there was unity, there was perfect unity. When they both started to think and act for themselves, that is when disunity creeps into the marriage. They were supposed to have the same mind, Adam and Eve. They were supposed to have the same love, be one-souled. They were supposed to each do nothing from selfish gain, do nothing from conceit. They were supposed to have one objective before them, and that was to glorify God and obey his word and resist the temptations of the devil. That was to be their overarching objective and what happened. They made their own selfish objective, their own selfish desires, their own selfish plans the main the, the main thing that they were after, and thus we, we see what, what has happened since then. Well, if then, friends, in the power of the Christ Spirit we do this, if that is, we do nothing from conceited, selfish ambition. If we, if we actually do this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, then what is left to do? Think about it. Promoting the advancement of others. That's all that's left to do. So you have a choice to make. If you truly do this in the power of the Spirit and do nothing from self, selfish conceit, then that's the only option. The only possibility that's left is to serve others, to think about what they need, to serve their ends, to count others, your spouse, your children, your siblings, your parents, your brothers and sisters in the church, your fellow elder, your pastor, your congregants, your fellow deacon. Regard them as more significant than yourself. Think about what they need in addition to what you need as well. Think about their interests, their needs. Think about also how to meet those needs and how to help them in their interests. That is where true freedom is found, friends. Rather than looking to advance our own causes, we should be thinking how to advance the lives of others. That's the point Paul is making. 
In the power of the Spirit, this is how we put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so we are to stop thinking only about me, myself, what's mine, what I deserve. We are to think about others, to love others, to think about them. Now, friends, this doesn't mean, when Paul says this, this doesn't mean we, as we do this, we completely disregard what we need. We still have needs. We still have interests. And it's okay to meet those things. We see, for example, in Jesus' Jesus' ministry, there were a couple of times his, his life was on the line. And he had to protect his own life until it was the appointed time for him to die. But we see him moving away from the crowds, hiding himself so as not to be killed before the appointed time. We also see him going off into desolate places to pray on his own. So he's on some level meeting his own needs there. He also tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we are to have a measure of love for ourselves. And so to love others doesn't mean we completely disregard what we need and what we're interested in. It's just that we think about these things alongside them. In fact, we even think about others as more significant than us. That's what Paul is saying. And so this takes wisdom for sure, friends. We aren't called necessarily as Christians to be doormats to just anyone and everyone who comes along. Paul is not saying that at all. And sometimes we do have to stand up to opposition. In fact, in chapter 3, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And so we do, with Godly wisdom, we have to recognize that selfish wolves will be present among us at times. But that doesn't change the divine command here. This is to be our frame of mind in the church, to think about others, to think about their needs, to do nothing from selfish conceit, selfish ambition. And beloved, this is how our joy in the spirit that we already possess and already experience now, this is how our joy finds its goal. Our joy in Christ is completed in this way, to borrow Paul's language from, these, from this section. Our joy is completed by seeking to be unified in this way. Now this language of the completion of our joy, when Paul says, complete my joy... It reminds us of the unique character of our unity and love, friends. We have unity, true unity. Now think about this. Other groups claim such a unity. They claim to be unified around something or around someone, around some movement. But all those claims to unity, if they are based on anything that is in this world, they are only temporary. They are not eternal. So it's false unity. It's not true unity. Whatever it may be, whatever people think they can rally themselves around that is not Jesus Christ and claim we are unified in this, they're wrong. It's temporary. It does not last forever. In the end, they will be divided if they don't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But our love, friends, our unity is true unity. It is Christian love that is present among us. It is unity in the Spirit who in the end will remove all hindrances to unity. That's Spirit. When Christ comes again, all sin will be taken away from us and therefore all hindrances, all obstacles to unity within the body of Christ will be completely and forever taken away. And we will be be perfectly unified in Christ enjoying Him forever. Do you see the difference between 
our unity and the unity that's claimed outside of the church. Our unity is forever. It's eternal. It is based upon and created by the power of God that is only enjoyed by us, by believers. Friends, when Christ comes again, all our sinful inclinations towards selfish advancement will be taken forever away. And that day has not yet come. And so we seek to complete the joy that we have with one another in the Spirit now. Complete it. Bring it to its end. Think this way. Bring it to its logical conclusion. Be unified. Think about others. Now, the last thing I would like to mention is this. Christ and the Spirit are mentioned here in this first part. We're about to look more in depth into Christ's own thinking. Paul says, have the mind of Christ, and we're going to look at that in the fantastic Christ hymn of verses 6 through 11, which is most likely a Christian hymn, a a creation of the church in some way, and Paul borrowed it. We'll look at that later. But for now, our unity and love, we'll think about what Christ, how Christ thinks, but for now, our unity and love, the completion of joy, this all flows from our union with Jesus Christ. He is present within us now. Our love for one another, however small or large it may be, flows from our union with Jesus Christ. It's all built upon the unity that he provides. That is the unity that we enjoy together. Now, how did he do this? How is it possible that we can enjoy such unity when we are sinful by nature, when we're selfish? How did Christ establish this unity in the church? Well, his body was divided. His body was split on the cross. Why did Jesus let this happen to him? He is the Son of God, and he let nails be driven into his hands and feet. And so his body was divided, and he died. Why? Why did he do this? He was thinking of your needs. He was thinking that what you needed was more significant than his own life. That is why we enjoy unity, because his body was broken for you. You see how that works? We'll look, again, we'll look more into that in depth in the Christ hymn of, verse, of the following verses. But that's where the unity comes from. The Son of God made flesh and divided for us to make us one. Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition. In humility, he regarded the spiritual needs of you and I as more significant than his very own life. And so he made us one. Friends, may we all complete our joy in him by having the same mindset. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forevermore.